So, as usual, we're going to begin in silence. So take a breath to be here and be open to the intention of knowing ourselves better and living in ways that all creation benefit from what we do here. So, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome, welcome here. here. So, um, my uh, hope and desire for ordinary life are modest. <laughs> I want to transform the whole world. And I want those of us who participate in ordinary life to become more spiritually literate. And by spiritual literacy, what I mean is to be involved in the ongoing process of growing in peace, love, joy, patience, and humility, those, those values. And that we bring these values to the places where we live in the world, to our homes, to our work various communities in which we participate, the various relationships we have, uh, circles of influence that we have so that, that we begin to have that ripple effect that makes a difference in the whole world. Where we treat all people with dignity because all people are worth that, to be treated with dignity, where everybody has a sense of belonging. Spiritual literacy is growing in the ability to experience and express the sacred from within, to become aware of that, and then to express that in the world. And we use our spiritual literacy to experience and communicate meaning and connection in a world that desperately needs meaning and connection. And thankfully, we live in a world where there are many places where we can become enabled to be more and more spiritually literate. One of these places can be found on this website called Spirituality in Practice. I have known the people who are behind this since before there was an internet. And I promise you, this is one of the richest resources for uh, getting spiritually literate movies, ideas for getting spiritually literate books, for taking courses. They now offer a certi certification in being a spiritually literate person. Hmm. Um, they have this interview with Thich Nhat Hanh on there. Thich Nhat Hanh died a couple of weeks mm. ago. And somebody was telling me today, and, and you can do this yourself, you can go uh, to the podcast on being, 
and mm -hmm. do a search of Thich Nhat Hanh mm -hmm. and, and go back and listen to the interviews that, that um, he did with Krista Tippett on Thich Nhat Hanh. But at any rate, this is an incredibly rich, worthwhile knowing about website. Um, I'm glad that Ordinary Life can be a place that contributes to people's spiritual literacy and that we um, have a growing online presence and um, offer resources for people's growth. Now, as you know, I don't stop there. I want people also to be religiously literate. Mm -hmm. And um, the way I'm going to go at that this morning is to say that every religion since the beginning of when religions were invented, has had two things that the adherents of that religion, whatever it might be, hold in common. One is that they have some body of material that they refer to as their scriptures. And the other is that they have a set of traditions that they use uh, about how they regard, use, relate to these documents that are their tradition. I know that I am about to repeat something that everybody in this room knows. He said that snarkily. <laughs> uh, just a bunch of slides. So in Buddhism, this written material is called the Pali Canon, and it's extensive. There's a lot of writing in um, Buddhism. In Hinduism, it's referred to as the Vedas. Some of the most beautiful scriptures are in the Hindu tradition, mm -hmm. which is the oldest religion that we have. In Judaism, of course, there is the Torah. In uh, Islam, there is the Quran. And uh, in Christianity, there is a collection that we call the New Testament. Now, for those who seek to follow Jesus, the accepted writings are five. And in order of their uh, written composition, they are, in my opinion, the Gospel of Thomas, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, written in that way. So when people in these religions gather for their main rituals, usually <clears throat> they bring some portion of this written material out, bring it lifted up in some way, and then they seek to find what's relevant uh, for, for their own lives out of the study of this material. Now, um, those of you who are gathered here today are a diverse group. Some of you are very, very familiar with the Jesus narrative in one way or another. Others of you are not. Um, some of you have been taught for years how to read, hear, and interpret these writings in our tradition in a particular way. Others of you could care less. And since we are doing this deep dive into the Gospel of John, I know that some of you have uh, read Shelby Spong's book, and um, some of you who read it found it liberating, and some of you who read it found it appalling, <laughs> shocking. 
As one person said, they were stunned to find that what you'd always taken to be true stories were now fairy tales. But they're not fairy tales. They're, <laughs> they're parables. So you were shocked at some of his assertion. So the passage that we're up to today in this book, which is, uh, and this slide is up every announcement Sunday, I mean during while the announcements play. John Sanford's book on mystical Christianity is a very accessible, readable book. Um, he calls what we're about to encounter today a piece of active imagination on the part of the person who wrote it. No contemporary scholar, no biblical scholar, no Jesus scholar believes Jesus actually said the words that are in this section of the Gospel of John. John was written at least 60 years after the death of Jesus, okay? Most of us cannot remember what we had for dinner last Tuesday. So to recall something after 60 years with the kind of intensity and verbal accuracy uh, 60 years ago, you know that's not, not happening. Now, biblical literalists get around this in a very clever way. They say that the Holy Spirit dictated the words that John wrote. As a matter of fact, there are some old paintings that show angels on the shoulders of the biblical writers dictate, whispering <laughs> in their ears what they were to write down. That doesn't happen to you every Sunday? No, no. I write this on Thursday. That's oh, what got it. Right. I got gotten. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to this later today because it's in uh, work that I'm reading. Um, there is in the Gospels, in, uh, particularly in Luke and Matthew, and it's implied in John, a question that's put into the mouth of Jesus. No scholar, again, believes that Jesus actually asked this question but it was a question that his followers ask of themselves and they ask of other people. Who do you think Jesus is? Or in the mouth of Jesus, that question becomes, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And more importantly, Sanford would say, who is the you that answers that question? Mm. Is that the ego you? Is that the self you? What Thomas Merton referred to as the true self? Uh, scholars say that Jesus rarely initiates dialogue, rarely refers to himself uh, so that he didn't ask that question, but others did. And more importantly, so what? So all of that that I have said sets the stage now. I don't think she's going to do it immediately, but sets the stage for Holly's Active imagination with this passage in John. Which you'll see the angel sitting on my shoulder when we get there. <laughs> well, how do we not know that you... That's right. <laughs> how do we know that you're not the angel? I don't know how to answer that question. I'll ask Josh. Okay. <laughs> so I think of the entire gospel as a work of active imagination. And as you say, it was written after Jesus's life. It's stories of his teachings recounted by his followers the way they remembered them. So they're engaging with Jesus after Jesus's death. And the active imagination is a Jungian process that bridges the gap 
between our conscious and unconscious minds. Not too long ago, we gave a kind of whole talk about the process of the active imagination. There's many ways that you can access how to sort of deepen or dive into it um, through setting an intention and through creating a space where that is good to do so. Um, but it's clear to me that ever since humans conceived of gods and then God, that we have been engaged in this process of active imagination. So it's pre-Jungian too. There were things early humans could not scientifically understand because we didn't have the tools or instruments to do so. We explained phenomena with stories and visual representations. Think of the earliest cave paintings. Before there was written language, there were written symbols. The imagination becomes a tool for perceiving outside of mental constraints. And language, whether it's symbolic, drawn, or verbal, or written, is the tool that we use to give shape to our imaginations. I This week, I um, kind of, not a deep dive, a small dive into Lloyd Gearing, who you are, you know, or have met. And Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. I, I don't, remind me again how you got to Lloyd's book. Well, I had heard of him, but I, I literally Googled Reimagining God, and his book came up, which I had not heard of this book. Mm -hmm. um, so I got it, and I started reading it. And he's 103. He's still alive. And, Gives and, me hope. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just, I just want to throw in that I know him. Yeah. I met him. Yeah. I mean, I don't know him as a personal friend, but yeah. I know him. I met him at my first encounter with the Jesus Seminar and kept up with him and his writings yeah. through the Jesus Seminar. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and so I would listen to an interview with him on a podcast called Life After God. In which, and this is not in my notes, but this is interesting. This guy who was raised in an evangelical fundamentalist tradition kind of had a crisis and said, this isn't working for me. I'm going to act as if I am an atheist for the next year. And in that way, he became an atheist. But he's still deeply interested in the questions of spirit, meaning, and even God. Um, but he has this conversation with Lloyd Gearing, and it was only two years ago, and he's very coherent, very with it. He is not, not getting any older. <laughs> mm -hmm. So anyways, this book, Reimagining God, he writes, language is the medium in which we live and move and have our being. In it we act, we structure the world, and order every aspect of our social life. Only language stands between us and the void. It shapes everything. Words, of course, have power. They create and destroy and recreate ideas. They create and destroy and recreate us, how we see and perceive ourselves. They solidify our beliefs. They turn our beliefs into actions. So what we say about God matters. We've heard this saying, in fact, it's a slide on your announcements, um, think outside the box. I heard this sort of turned on its head. Well, perhaps it's more apt to say that thinking is the box. Thinking alone stifles the imagination. Of course thinking is required. I'm not saying throw it out. <laughs> but we ought not to give it up. But the problem comes when we begin to take our thinking too seriously or too literally that we can't access the deeper meaning or we lose the ability to consider someone else's point of view because we're so tied to thinking we are right. There's a story from Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now that was a you know, hit book, however, 20 years ago, 
um, in which language sort of tickles our imaginations, not just about ourselves, but about the idea of God and the God self. So the story goes, a beggar had been sitting by the side of a road for 30 years. One day, a stranger walked by. Spare some change, mumbled the beggar, mechanically holding out his old baseball cap. I have nothing to give you, said the stranger. Then he asked, what's that you are sitting on? Nothing, replied the beggar, just an old box. I've been sitting on this box for as long as I can remember. Ever looked inside, asked the stranger. No, said the beggar, what's the point? There's nothing in there. Have a look inside, insisted the stranger. The beggar manages to pry open the lid and with astonishment, disbelief, and elation, he sees that the box was filled with gold. I am that stranger who has nothing to give you and who is telling you to look inside, not inside any box as in the parable, but somewhere even closer, inside of yourself. So the discourse we're treated to in John is not to be taken literally. It is like the story of the beggar, like the healing story of the paralytic that we went through last week, like the water into wine miracle, a consciousness raising speech. Jesus isn't talking literally about raising the dead, but about achieving the kind of consciousness that can hold doubt and faith, that can hold the willingness to question everything we've ever known while still trusting that something is true, to bring us to life. What do we find if we let go of ideas about God? We find the self. And what do we find when we discover the self? We find God. So um, this passage in John, and she didn't do her active imagination. No, yet. that was not it. That was um, somebody else's. <laughs> th this, um, this passage in John is preparing people for the next sign stories that we will be encountering in the weeks to come. And I was thinking, um, you know, there are people who've never been in church who know the sign story. Because there's so much a part of our cultural understanding about things. I don't, I don't think there's anybody in American culture, any adult in American culture, who has a high school degree, for example, who doesn't know about the water and the wine stories. It's a joke, right? Or that Jesus could make a, a, feed a multitude with five loaves of bread and two fishes. Or that he could walk on water. Or that he raised Lazarus. Those uh, feeding and the wa walking on water stories are the ones that are coming next. And that's what this active imagination is setting us up to, to get ready to understand what these stories are about. The writings in John cannot be understood apart from a mystical mindset. And we, who have been born and raised in this country, are not trained to see and experience ourselves or our world in a non-dual manner. To move in that direction requires that we have a committed contemplative practice. Do you notice how I work that in without saying? <laughs> the other way to say that is a daily. Okay, so I want, I want to introduce you to somebody and, and you may, um, you just take you you take this as a recommendation if you want to. Um, this is um, a, a man by the name of 
Brother Lawrence Freeman, or Father Lawrence Freeman, he now, according to my latest information, lives in Italy, in a monastery in Italy. I think he is, um, this is a probably more acceptable picture of him. The first one is, uh, he is with uh, Dalai Lama, as this playful as any two people can do. Be. And I am in the process of, of reading this book of his, Jesus the Teacher Within, and I'm reading it in the way that Jim Finley suggested reading a mm -hmm. book, and that is reading a paragraph and writing it in my own words and reading a paragraph and writing it. It's a monster book. It's not easy to read. He's got some of his own personal diary from his life in uh, Ireland uh, interwoven with the things that he writes. But his whole book is around this question of who do you who do you say that I am and who is the you who answers that question. It's a bombshell of a book. Mm. And on the cover, Rowan Williams, Archbishop Rowan Williams says, it's written without anxiety, with boldness, wit, and calm. And as I said, the entire book is a meditation, scholarly meditation on this question, who do you say that I am? And what is involved in answering that question? It's a big book. Now, Freeman contends that it is in answering this question, if we're seeking to be guided in our spiritual life by the teachings of Jesus, it's in answering this question that we are prepared to enter into the community of Jesus' followers. Uh, I don't know how many people we have here today. Richard will tell me later, maybe, but... Um, more, more than usual, thank you for coming, and also thank you for being there. A lot of people are not coming back to public gatherings because they're fear of the, the virus, or they've just gotten out of the habit. And they, they believe that they can derive as much benefit online as they can in person. I'm glad that you're online, if you are, hi. But you derive more in person because you're part of a community. This solitary work we can't do by ourselves. Right? Now, when we're in the community that Jesus talks about, ideally, there's neither hatred nor any kind of division because we're free to act in accordance with our essential goodness or with what's called the true self. So, uh, in this book, um, Freeman recounts a story that many of you may be familiar with. A Gentile who was tired of the endless arguments that went back and forth among the Jews about the law and keeping the law. You remember last week in the healing of the story of the man who had been by the pool in Bethesda for 38 years. The Jewish officials were all upset because he rolled up his bed and took it, carried it with him on the Sabbath. And for that, they wanted to kill Jesus. Okay. So uh, this um, Gentile asked Hillel, a liberal rabbi, who was a contemporary of Jesus, for a summary of the Torah. Could he recount the essence of the law while standing on one foot? And Hillel replied, quote, whatever is hopeful, hateful to you, do not do that to your fellow man. This is the whole Torah. 
The rest is commentary. Now, go and live the story. Now, communicating the nature of this vision, the vision of this community, requires an artist. And Jesus was a master artist. Mm -hmm. He was a master at storytelling. Uh, and he gives us these unforgettable images of community in which he invites us. Now, that's kind of a dual message because Jesus really didn't invite people into the... Well, he did, but... The, the way that I like to say it is that Jesus did not talk about the kingdom of God. He talked from the kingdom of God. And he invited people to join him in that experience. So he told these stories. They're multidimensional. A seed growing, bread rising, birds settling into branches, crops coming up to ripeness. Pearls being discovered, seas being fished, people canceling debts, wayward sons coming to their senses and returning home, stubborn petitioners getting what they want, people being forgiven, children being children. Simone Well, do you know of her? You know of her? I love her. I didn't yeah. know that you loved You know, her. She, was, uh, yeah. she, was a Christian, she was Jewish who believed in Jesus and never joined a church. Yes, she thought that the church was heretical. She was amazing. She, she died way too early. Mm -hmm. And she said that the tragedy of Christianity is that it came to see itself as replacing other religions rather than adding to all religions. So this is essential addition that Jesus is adding to his Jewish religion and that he had no idea about what how religions would multiply, but that we could, could add to all religions, and that is teachings about community and belonging. You don't have to go looking for this kingdom. As Holly indicated, it's already in the box you're sitting on, or it's in your pocket, or it's in your purse. You have it already. Now, here's the tricky part. In order to enter into Jesus' experience of God, the main thing that we have to get rid of is a punitive notion of God. And that's why we're calling this time today letting go of God. Because the reflexive idea of God in Western culture is as a God who's punitive, a God who punishes, a God whom we need to be afraid of. The way that God is presented, and this is quoting Richard Orr, the way that God is presented in most churches is not a being that you would go out on a second date with. <laughs> or a preferential God, one who prefers one group over the other, and as opposed to an inclusive God. So I, I, yeah, I, I hope you keep all this stuff in your mind, and <laughs> your brains just explode someday. But remember what we said, there were two storylines, the Jewish Storyline that's punitive, the fall. We live in the fallen state, and then Jesus comes, and then you got a choice either to go to heaven or hell. 
and I misspoke. It's that's not the Jewish Jesus storyline. The Jewish Jesus storyline is all along from the beginning. God is seeking out, pursuing, inviting, wanting to hold, wanting to love, never judging. It's a great story. <laughs> it's a shame it doesn't get more of a, a preaching. We might say this in different ways throughout this class, but how we see God has everything to do with how we see ourselves. Absolutely. So this every wisdom tradition that I know of has a concept of unification between the self and all that is. And in monotheistic traditions, we call all that is God, Allah, Yahweh. Any concept of God, though, and this was in this interview with Lloyd Gearing, and he goes further into this throughout his life, I think, is God is a human construct. And polytheistic religions have concepts of many gods to explain phenomenon. And the move from polytheism to monotheism, uh, Gearing says, is reflective of the evolution of our knowledge and consciousness. So as we begin to know more, we gave sort of less rationale to the gods of nature, right? It wasn't the god of the volcano causing the volcano to erupt. It was the earth doing its thing, right? We are now in what he says is a post-theistic society in which we mostly know better than to prescribe things we don't understand to an unseen God. And we're trying to find a place for mystery and meaning alongside these tremendous advances in science and technology, as well as our understandings of the unconscious. We know much more about the human brain and behavior. It seems like we're teetering somewhere between post-theism and humanism. And I say teetering because I think a full embrace of humanism would actually mean a readiness to take personal responsibility for our beliefs and behavior, to acknowledge how we've used and misused language, and a willingness to be embrace the full dignity of every single person. Full stop. Every single person. So the things we say we believe about God, that God is loving, just, and good, actually lay a tremendous responsibility at our feet. If we say these things about God, shouldn't we also believe them about ourselves? This is the challenge I think that Nietzsche gave us when he famously proclaimed, proclaimed that God is dead. He saw a world in which humans were unkind, actually more than unkind. They were horrific in their behavior. So his assessment was that the God that we say we believe in must be dead if humans are not living according to the God we say we believe in. That's what he meant. It was a call to be better. Do what you say this God is telling you to do. The God self-union is expressed in these religious traditions in the following ways. The Upanishads, the, the Hindu texts say, the all-embracing is myself in the inner heart. In Buddhism, the Buddha taught not a view or an ideology or a set of doctrine, but a way that illuminates the unification of the soul, the boundless inclusion in the heart of all that has become. And in the Christian tradition, I and the Father are one. We hear that throughout the gospel. The entire gospel of John is about this pure relatedness uh, where two have become one, where community is fundamental, and even scientists are seeking a unified theory of everything, a way to understand how the universe works. I think we are wired to seek wholeness. I think we're wired to seek some kind of understanding of why we are here and why we all belong here. 
Martin Buber, who has become one of my favorite philosophers, um, he's a Jewish mystic, wrote, in truth, there is no God seeking because there is nothing where one could not find him or her. <laughs> How foolish and hopeless must one be to leave one's way of life to seek God. There is no God seeking. There's only God presencing, which in turn is becoming present to the self and to the world. I think it was Teilhard who said, if, if my belief in Jesus should fail, if my belief in God should fail, I still believe in the world. So attend to these parts of ourselves that want to distance from problems like poverty, racism, environmentalism. There are no quick fixes to these things. We've created them over thousands of years, but there is just being with them. We want to spring into action because action feels good and purposeful, but action without contemplation can only take us so far. So I'm thinking, and this is not in my notes either, I'm thinking about um, this book that I read last year by Judy Kanata mm -hmm. called Field of Compassion, which puts what, the kind of thing that you're talking about um, that shows up in these various religious traditions all over the world. And physics, well, everything is grounded in physics. Our understanding of everything is based on our understanding of the physical world. And all the sciences grow up from that. The softer ones change. When there's a change in physics, then there's a change in the sciences that are on top of them, and the softer changes occur later, right? So that you get, a, when there's a change in, in physics, you get a change in organized, organized religion about 400 years later. That's the way that history has been going. So we've got like 300 more years? Yeah. Okay. We're, 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 well, we can speed that up if, if people in the community of empowerment have the willingness to step into that energy. She, she calls it field of compassion. And I wanted, after reading that book, I thought, here's a woman who is a devoted Roman Catholic who ends every chapter of her book with a prayer that is in the Michael Morewood way of praying. It's so beautiful, and she's this physicist. And I wanted to get her to come and speak here, and I found out she died last year. Yeah, so yeah. It would be a real miracle if she showed up. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about raising the dead. Yeah. <laughs> So I want to quote something from Freeman's book. Quote, the symbol of God is the most powerful of all the symbols the mind clings to. It constellates our entire symbolic universe. It influences and interprets all personal and social life. However we may think, or even refuse to think of God, whether we are theist, atheist, or agnostics, the idea of God is the most comprehensive of all symbols. Mm. I once had an encounter with someone who, um, on finding out that I was a spiritual teacher, which I always, I, I really don't want people to know that right off the bat, because you get pigeonholed, you put in a box, and you, do, you quit hearing good jokes. Uh, <laughs> You mean the ones with like the ones that I can't tell here? Yeah. 
Anyway, this guy found out I was a spiritual teacher, and he, he said, oh, I believe in God, just not like you do. <laughs> that was our second, his second thing to say to me. You talk about projection. He had no idea what was in my head. <laughs> Even the image of God that non-believers say they do not believe in is a very potent symbol. Now, I've come to understand that our understanding of the symbol the word God points to has been under construction since we became conscious little critters. It comes from all the encounters we have with authority, absorbed from our parents, older siblings, teachers, priests, pastors, police, etc. And the fear of rejection or of punishment associated with these authority figures when we we're little, um, that those leave lingering impressions and, and they leave wounds on our psyches. So we transfer this to the God out there in heaven. And um, in a way, this, this symbol becomes an idol that descends into serving our human power systems and our petty needs. Now, I know some of our needs don't seem petty at times, especially when you're standing at the bedside of a dying loved one. Mm -hmm. Or when your team is losing. <laughs> or when you can't find that parking space. You know what you pray for. <laughs> The masculinity of God is shaped and is shaping our politics. I wonder what would happen if instead of our saying or thinking, as Holly mentioned a moment ago, of God as he who is, what would happen if we thought of God as she who is? Or even more powerfully as of God as she who is black. Yeah. By the way, if you've not read this book, The Shack, um, I recommend it, actually. It's um, got the best section on judgment in this book mm -hmm. I have ever read anywhere. When um, Mac is asked by Sophia to judge God, Oh, it's a beautiful section. Get it. Read it. And it's also the best explication of the Trinity that is written in, uh, that's accessible to people. Get your hands on it. Mm -hmm. So when, when we are free from our cultural understandings of God, and this I think is one of the main purposes of Jesus. Jesus kept saying over and over, God is not what you think God is. Besides, God and I are one, and so are you. Oh, the Jews did like that a lot. <laughs> but when we get that, then we're free to develop all the sides of our personality without judgment. And this is, I think, one of the effects of what Jesus called the kingdom of God and which we're calling the empowering community.
which is what we're called to be. We so easily split from that vision. We so easily get into our judging minds, not just of ourselves, especially of ourselves, but the more we're judging ourselves, the more we're judging everyone else. So we get to the fun part. There's cue the angel um, <laughs> who's breathing these words. I think this would actually be an excellent exercise for everyone in here with any scripture, but in this case, this, this discourse that is somewhat diatribe <laughs> somewhat, um, you know, a little nutty, <laughs> uh, to reread it and to write it in your own words. It's John 5, 19 through 38. It, it, it was fun for me. And, we, and this happened, we talked about it on the podcast this week, which somehow got lost in the ether. I blame my iPad. So it never got released. But somewhere out in the ether <laughs> is a challenge to do this work of active imagination, reread and rewrite this passage. So the exercise is, how would you write this discourse in your own words? To return to the beginning, this is our active imagination, engaging with this text with heart and mind without overthinking or judging. I am positive, however, that as I read what I wrote, that my conscious mind will judge it, and yours might too. <laughs> but here it goes. John 5, 19 through 38. I have said this to y'all before. I am not interested in your rules or your doctrine. I'm not actually even concerned with your beliefs. I am interested in you. No one else can do you. The whole planet is rooting for you, keeping you alive and raising you up every day when you are low. I am interested in how your heart sees and how you show up each and every day, whether you remember to look up and say, hello world, and whether you honor the God in you as I do. When I see you, it is reflected back to me and I am blinded by your lightness. This spark is the very essence of you and this is what must be brought forth in order to have life to the full, in order to be raised from a lifeless life. We are caught in this web of reciprocity to which everything belongs. Yes, I said everything. Anything that affects you affects me. It is bidirectional, a continuous, unbroken loop. You've heard of the butterfly, yes? About the butterfly who flapped its small and fragile iridescent wings on one coast and swelled to a tsunami on another. The butterfly felt proud and humbled by her power. She did that. You too have this softness, this strength. Both must be harnessed with great care. Your voice stirs the stars. So raise your voice from the dead and stir all that needs mending. The world needs you. We are all different colored threads in this grand cosmic tapestry. And when we get this, I mean, really get this, our senses will come alive. Yellows will become yellower. Blues will become deeper and draw you forth into their blueness. Birds will sound like holy song and trees like chimes in the wind. Fruits will dribble with sweetness and stick to your hands. And your laughter will sound like praise, your tears like rain. If you put your ear to the ground and feel the pulse of the gravitational pull that keeps you and everything tethered to it, if you can feel yourself moving, in rhythm with all that is, you will get this, that you are part of life and life is part of you. 
you will look out and say, hello world, what do you need from me? You are yourself. You are everything that ever was and ever will be. The very cells of your being are in cadence with the memory of creation. It is ancient and you are ancient. It is new and you are new. Both will die and both will live forever. I have an idea. If you still don't believe me, if you think I am a crazy person talking crazy talk and still all you experience is a muted, soundless, tasteless, and dull life, take up your bedroll and go lie under the West Texas sky, or better yet, under the freeway with the beggars in their boxes of gold. Better yet, look into someone's eyes. There's an entire universe there too. Watch as they come to life. Notice that you are alive in them. Your very breath in line with their breath. With every out-breath, you become part of the memory of the world. And if you believe this, your soul will be renewed and your life will be saved because you will see just how beautiful you truly are. Bravo. That was great. That was great. Uh, it's a great way to read anything. To read it and interact with it and have this active imagination. Robert Johnson says that when you get involved in active imagination, which somebody asking here about what happens if you can't remember your dreams, do active imagination. You know, have this active imagination that you're out walking on the beach and just pay attention. Mm -hmm. Something will happen. You know? Robert said you might get sunburned and have to go to the emergency room and <laughs> fall in love with the nurse that takes care of you. And If you're a woman, there are male nurses now. So If you're a woman, there are female nurses. Too. There are female nurses too. <laughs> so the title that we gave this talk today is uh, Letting Go of God. <clears throat> and on the announcement sides that come up every Sunday, the general theme that we're giving this is uh, reimagining our sacred story. A place to come from. Not a place to get to. You don't have to go anywhere to get to heaven. You don't have to die to go to heaven. Or you have to die of the ego, but you don't have to die literally to go to heaven. So that I want to say it again and again and again, that Jesus didn't talk about this community. He, he talked from this place and invited people to join him. And when they did, they became loving, fearless, forgiving human beings who attracted other people to that energy. That's how the Christian movement got a start. I look back over some of the notes I've made since we began the series in, uh, on John, and one of the possible themes I gave it was discovering and living the way of embracing the true self. And another was experiencing and expressing a hidden wholeness. Mm -hmm. So the Gospel of John, at least this is the current opinion of scholars, was written by different writers in different levels over a period of about 30 years. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in an evangelical conservative church, and the image I got was that John was written by a guy named John, and one day he sat down and wrote it out and sent it to the publisher, and they got it, and that was it. But that's not how the documents were written. But what you have in John 
is the raw feelings of these followers of Jesus who had been excommunicated by the leaders of the synagogues where they went. And they were learning how to live apart from Judaism, right? And for many of them, that was just too much to bear. So they went back. Anything in our contemporary culture like that? So there is this push forward, which gets to be too much for a lot of people, and they want to go back and make it great again. <laughs> so we're living in this world, like it or not, that <clears throat> some of us are learning about evolutionary cosmology as articulated by people like Ilya Delio and Michael Morewood. And that we have been invited to live apart from forms of Christianity that we were more than likely taught growing up. And this is a lot more than some people can tolerate, so they go back. So we're living in a time where there is this growth of fundamentalism and where there is, um, in the far right, a, a new form of Christianity, which I call American Christianity. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. But it's come to the surface, and it's militant, permissive of anger, of racism. It's been on destroying what and who gets in the path to dominate. So the gospel of John is not about religion. It's not about sin and salvation. It's about expanded life and living this life through expanded consciousness. Now, there are three main things I think you need to keep in mind for a proper understanding of the writing of John. First of all, it cannot be taken literally. Second, there you go. <laughs> it must be seen as a Jewish writing. And third, it is mystical from beginning to end. And what this means is that for the writers of John and for the members of the community that produced this writing, for what it meant for them is that the journey into self was the same as the journey into God. God was not perceived as a being. God is not distant or otherworldly. John understands God to be a verb, an energy that is calling and forming and shaping not only us, but all of creation into being what we were created to be. <coughs> and it is this life-expanding oneness with God to which the writers of John believed that Jesus was calling us. Now, I do not want anything I've said to make this impersonal or heady. So get the picture. After Jesus was executed, his followers were terrified. They are depicted, and we'll get to this at the end of John, they're depicted as afraid to go outside. Further, as their experience of what they call resurrection grew among them, they were kicked out of the synagogue. 
They shape the story about Jesus in a crucible that is full of fear and doubt. I think one of the most important things that American Christianity misses about the story is the role that women played in the early shaping of the story, right? You don't get that in American culture. But you do get it in the Gospel of John that the first witness to the resurrection was a woman. First disciple, first apostle. Go tell the others. That's what apostle means. But we diss that in our culture. But we've already encountered it in the Samaritan woman by the well. The Samaritan woman by the well. All right? Jesus breaking boundaries, crossing barriers, inviting people who are not to be invited in. You go back to your village and tell them, apostle, female. Jesus treated women with way more respect than the church has ever treated them. And the term Jesus used for his work and what people in the Johannine community experienced was community. A community where belonging isn't based on status, achievement, or gender, but rather on the deep belief that everyone is welcome, everyone matters, everyone is loved, no exceptions. This community is for scarred, scared people People who want to belong but aren't sure what or how they believe. Jesus is a door. He's an invitation and a doorway that people can walk through to new dimensions of what it means to be human. And here's the tricky part. You can't walk through that doorway and hold on to any kind of literalism whatsoever. Because people who do that, just look around. People who do that become violent, even though sometimes that violence is wrapped in a velvet glove. That's why some of the insurrectionists on January 6th of last year could take with them into the Capitol building copies of the Bible, the cross, and the Christian flag. As I said last week, uh, history will show that Christianity is always the victim of religion. So John opens the door into the world of mysticism where we are invited to re-examine what we think it means to have faith, how we understand God, what it means, and how to enter a new realm of consciousness and, and relate to the sacred, the need to cross boundaries and break barriers both within and without. And then we're given a model in this passage that Holly did the active imagination on about how to respond to this. Now, I want to promise you today, I am not leaving you hanging, okay? Because there's nothing to hang on to. That's the point. Jesus says it over and over and over again. You're held. Have faith in that. That's the stance from which you can enjoy life and life 
abundant. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week.